Hi everyone, and welcome to a special installment of Podcast 360. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. This special installment is part of our Expert Conversation series, a more detailed conversation featuring insights that will affect clinical practice. My guests today are Dr. Andrew Blum, who is a professor of neurology at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and the director of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Program at Rhode Island Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. And Dr. Wael Assad, who is an associate professor of neurosurgery and neurosciences at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. And he's also the director of functional and epilepsy neurosurgery at Rhode Island Hospital. Dr. Blum and Dr. Assad are both affiliated with the Kearney Institute for Brain Science at Brown University. Today, they will share their insights on a case series they conducted on responsive neurostimulation and how the technology has evolved over the past decade. Thank you both for joining me today. Can you start by telling us more about your case series and why did you choose responsive neurostimulation over other options? Sure. So this is Dr. Blum. Our uh, case series begins with a patient who presented with uh, what proved to be one of the more common challenges that we face with medically refractory epilepsy, that of um, multifocal epilepsy, in this case, bitemporal epilepsy. And traditionally, when patients present with this sort of challenge, the treatment options, when medications don't suffice, traditionally would involve choices such as resective uh, epilepsy surgery. But this is not a good option when patients have truly bitemporal foci. And so the treatment options for this first case that drew us into neuromodulation, the treatment options for this patient um, involve choices between uh, responsive neurostimulation, deep brain stimulation, or possibly a type of uh, laser ablation to a more dominant focus as a palliative approach. But as our team progressed to work through this patient's data set, and we, we decided to have the patient undergo invasive monitoring with depth electrodes placed by Dr. Assad, we learned that their epileptic foci were fairly equally involved in generating seizures between the right and left temporal lobes. And that drew us away from an ablative procedure, particularly because the patient was hoping to avoid the cognitive consequences that would accompany an ablative approach. And that drew us immediately toward the stimulation options, which would spare the risk of memory loss. And so we focused on our conversation and our thought process on the choices between responsive neurostimulation and deep brain stimulation. I think that we were drawn to responsive neurostimulation in this particular instance because it allowed us to accrue data, essentially generating recordings from the brain 
once the device is implanted. And those recordings over time might give us a better sense of the nature of the patient's problem and might open up the door to future treatment options in a way that deep brain stimulation would not allow. One of the big distinctions between responsive neurostimulation and deep brain stimulation is the ability with responsive neurostimulation to record electrocorticographic examples of the patient's seizures over time in vivo and get a much more truer sense of the nature of their epilepsy. Let me invite my colleague, Dr. Asad. Wael, do you uh, have any additional comments about that deliberation in this case? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think that it's, you know, it's true that basically because she was bitemporal on our intracranial monitoring in the hospital that, you know, her options were limited. And I think deep brain stimulation, which is an open loop therapy where electrical stimulation is delivered in a constant fashion, irrespective of brain activity or seizure events, is a reasonable option in this case. It, it targets the anterior nucleus of the thalamus, which is part of the circuit that the medial temporal lobes are, are you know, it's, it's in that circuit. And so um, certainly you'd, you'd affect that circuit in a, in a modulatory way and potentially reduce your seizures. But there are cases where, you know, when patients are implanted with a responsive neurostimulator system or bitemporal, and over time you see their seizure pattern in the wild, you know, when they're back on all their medications and they're kind of living with their refractory seizures, you notice that actually it turns out that maybe 90 or you know, 90% or more of their seizures are coming from one side, and all of a sudden that patient is potentially a candidate if they wanted for something like a temporal lobectomy or a laser amygdala hippocampotomy, um, whereas you know, what you see in the hospital doesn't always conform to what you see in the wild because in the hospital, in order to see their seizures, you decrease their medications, and who knows, maybe medications were adequately treating seizures on one side but not the other, but when you decrease medications to elicit seizures in the hospital, all of a sudden you think that it's truly bitemporal. So doing a responsive neurostimulator system allows you to record their real seizures in the wild. It allows you to tailor therapy to their actual seizure burden in the wild. And it might actually reveal a different pattern of seizure events, you know, when they're back on their full meds. So having that feedback is really useful. And it's always nice to know that, you know, even if the stimulation, let's say, were not to work, you'd still be capturing seizure events, and maybe that could guide medical therapy a little bit better because you'd have an objective record of that. So I think from those perspectives, having a system that's able to record neural signals and deliver therapy based upon those signals, those are two independently good things that I think the responsive neurostimulator allows us to do. Another aspect that differentiates these methods has to do with the location of the generator and the ease with which the patient can get generator replacements when the battery life begins to wane. Yet another point of distinction has to do with some of the requirements that each system poses for the patient. So for the responsive neurostimulator, the patient has to be prepared to upload data with some frequency to a cloud server that enables our group as well as engineers at Neuropace, the manufacturer of this responsive neurostimulator system, to accrue the data and analyze the data and generate hypotheses and recommendations on how to adjust the settings of the recording and stimulating system. So the responsive neurostimulation method does 
ask more of the patient, especially early in the first several months of care as new data is being accrued and analyzed. Whereas the deep brain stimulator method in a way more closely resembles the vagal nerve stimulator method in which the device is placed and then it cycles on and off autonomously and doesn't require that the patient be uploading data specifically as for the responsive nerve stimulator. Yael, when you review some of these aspects, the requirements of battery changes and the tasks that the patient have to perform, how do you find the patients reacting to that information as they help participate in the, the choice between these various methods? So as you said, the location of the pulse generator and the, and the electronics is a little different in both cases. In the responsive neurostimulator system, it sits embedded in the skull. We drill out a little piece of the skull and, and basically drop the device into that. Whereas in deep brain stimulation, it's the same basic system as you would implant for movement disorders where there are electrodes in the head, but then they travel down behind the ear, through the neck, you know, under the skin subcutaneously to a pulse generator battery in the infraclavicular site, you know, in their chest wall. And there are benefits and disadvantages to both. You know, having the device in the head means that if something were to go wrong, if you need to replace the battery, you know, which eventually you do because it's not rechargeable, then you have to open up the scalp. And, you know, the scalp upon repeated opening doesn't heal quite as well as skin and other parts of the body. You know, and that also means maybe a potentially a head shave for the patient. But I think that in the interim where they're just living with the device, not having these wires, you know, underneath the skin of the neck and, you know, sometimes there can be something called tethering where patients with deep brain stimulation find it a little bit, you know, uncomfortable to turn their head and that, that happens occasionally. And so, you know, you, you don't have that in the meantime. So patients might find it a little more comfortable just to have everything in the head with no wires running down to the chest area. But from changing the battery point of view, servicing the pulse generator, that's certainly easier to do when it's in the chest. So there's certainly advantages and disadvantages to both. So those were some of the factors that influenced the course of the, this first patient in our series. They were implanted with a responsive nerve stimulator and beginning to uh, have follow-up visits. It's too early for any of these cases to say much about their outcomes, but it is easy to say that we're detecting seizures and successfully recording examples of their electrocortographic information, uploading the data, and having effective follow-up visits that allow us to make adjustments to the detection parameters and the stimulation parameters. But we're still well within the first six or nine months of the uh, implantation. So it's early to say concerning outcomes. One of the nice things about the neuromodulatory approaches to management of epilepsy is that we've learned in the field that the efficacy of treatment with the neurostimulatory approaches seems to grow over time and is well-maintained and improves in general over the ensuing years after the device is used. And this is in contradistinction to the experience with many of the pharmacologic therapies for epilepsy in which some of the efficacy may wane over time. Also, unlike medications, uh, the side effect profile is dramatically different. These devices tend not to cause sedation 
and in some instances, quite the contrary. Uh, so the experience with the vagal nerve stimulator, for instance, causes some improvement in mood and some alerting effects, whereas many of the medications that we prescribe for patients with epilepsy often cause lethargy, uh, amongst other side effect features. So um, you have to measure the outcome with the neuromodulatory systems over years. Our second case we want to highlight in the series is a different category of epilepsy challenge. This involves a patient that we follow who was proved to have a focal cortical dysplasia, which led to their refractory epilepsy. And in this case, her focal cortical dysplasia was in an eloquent area close to her dominant hand in the left frontal region. So again, when thinking about treatment options for this patient, resection was a not a very attractive approach because of the risk to causing a deficit in her hand function. If we were trying to help this patient 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, our options at the time might involve a surgical procedure called multiple subpeel transections, or MST, also referred to as the Morel procedure. That procedure can sometimes be beneficial, but frequently the patients relapse, and its ability to have an enduring effect on seizure control is limited in our experience. But nowadays, with the advent of neuromodulatory therapies, the treatment options are expanded for such patients. So in this instance, this patient was confronting a choice between a vagal nerve stimulator and a responsive nerve stimulator. And we educated the patient about both of these options, but we were more enthusiastic about responsive nerve stimulation because we knew exactly where the problem was and we had more hope and confidence that this might have an enduring effect that might help this patient preferentially with the uh, responsive neurostimulation approach. It's hard to directly compare these forms of therapy because they haven't truly been compared to head-to-head comparisons in the literature. But the um, published outcomes with responsive neurostimulation that have looked at longer-term outcomes extended beyond five years, say, from implants show up to uh, 70 or so percent responder rates, whereas with the vagal nerve stimulation, the responder rates seem to be a little less. The initial study showed approximately 45% of patients showed improvement, whereas with further follow-up time, these rates do go up noticeably, but we had more confidence in the responsive neurostimulation approach, and knowing exactly where the lesion was was a solved many of the questions that we had that influenced where to place the device and how to approach it. Wild, do you want to speak to some of the aspects of this case from a surgical point of view? Yeah, sure. I mean, as as you know, I tend actually to be less enthusiastic about vagal nerve stimulators in general. I feel like that's kind of a even assuming efficacy, which I think there's reasonable debate over their actual degree of efficacy, you know, given the quality of the studies performed and the process by which it gained FDA approval. But even assuming efficacy, I think that it's it's a non-targeted approach and for a very generic form of brain modulation that, you know, I think if we know where the problem is coming from and we can hit that 
site directly, I think that that always seems like the, the best approach to me. In addition, you know, there's this other aspect like we discussed uh, with relation to deep brain stimulation, which is that you can actually get data. So assuming we aren't able to control the seizures through stimulation, at the very least, we have, again, a good measure of the patient's true life in the wild seizure burden, response to therapy. And so I, I think that in general, having that is, is really a big positive for any device we implant. We might as well get some data back from it to help us guide this patient's therapy more generally. As other centers that do uh, responsive neurostimulation treatment, we have several surgical options that exist. We could apply a subdural strip electrode that can detect and deliver stimulation. And equally, we have the option of placing depth electrodes in or near the lesion. I think as a field, we're grappling with these choices to try to learn what might be the best approach to detect and stimulate these areas helpfully in these patients. Wael, do you have any early thoughts on some of these choices, or is it too early to say? It's probably too early to say, but I think based on our, our experience so far, it seems that when there's a dysplasia deeper down and you put a depth electrode into it, it seems that we're getting better signals corresponding to the you know, uh, abnormal electrical activity and seizure events compared to a subdural strip placed over the surface of the cortex. And so I think that if we can stick a depth electrode into it, that would be my preference. The question is, should we just put all our bets, because with the responsive neurostimulation device, you're going to plug two electrode arrays into it, and one, you know, each array has four contacts arranged in line, and the idea is that you'll have two chances to hit the seizure focus, and so you decide which one you're recording from, which one you're stimulating from, and so you could hedge your bets, place one depth electrode, one surface electrode, you could place two depths, you can, you know, and actually in some cases, as we did in this case, you can actually place more than two and keep one sort of as a backup so that if neither of the first two works, we place two depth electrodes plus a third that we didn't plug into the system. But let's say the patient comes back and neither of those worked, we could swap out, you know, operatively it would, it would require, but we could swap out one of the depth electrode strips for another one because it's already just sitting there next to the device ready to be plugged in. I think in the future, you know, I think the more chances we have to hit the network, the better. So hopefully, you know, I think we're anticipating that future devices will allow us to plug in potentially more electrode strips and therefore have a better chance of modulating the seizure focus or even better, perhaps the seizure network, which might actually contain multiple foci or nodes. So I think that's sort of where things are headed. Very interesting. So that was the course for that patient. And these two first patients demonstrate paradigmatic examples of idealized types of cases for responsive neurostimulation, the first being bitemporal, and the second being a isolated neocortical lesion, in this case, in eloquent region of cortex. Our third case was, in some ways, the most challenging of all and required more innovative approach. So this patient was an individual who had a rather severe encephalitis several years ago, leading to medically refractory form of epilepsy. This patient was found to be quite refractory to a variety of approaches over several years. We had a strong suspicion that this patient might well be multifocal, in part based on conversations with the patient and his spouse, uh, hearing descriptions of different semiologies of the seizures that the patient might have at home. But 
we didn't know to what degree this patient was multifocal. And so we decided, thinking that we were probably headed towards a type of neurostimulation approach, that we would have the patient undergo a phase two or invasive monitoring with bilaterally placed depth electrodes in both frontal and temporal lobes to try to discern whether there were certain dominant foci that would lend themselves to various forms of treatment or whether we were dealing with a very widely distributed multifocal form of refractory epilepsy. And the long and short of it was that this patient had the latter problem. They had a more multifocal type of problem. And so we then analyzed the treatment options. One option would be vagal nerve stimulation. And in fact, this patient had already received a vagal nerve stimulator along the way several years earlier and had a partial response to the vagal nerve stimulator but now they were seeking a different form of therapy that might add to the level of control that they were experiencing with medications and an ongoing vagal nerve stimulator. And so we explored whether or not responsive nerve stimulation could be combined with a vagal nerve stimulator indwelling to potentially help this patient. And this prompted conversations with Neuropace and their experts to see what what is the state of the field in this regard. And we learned that one can combine vagal nerve stimulation with responsive nerve stimulation, which is good to hear. Didn't mean that this patient had to give up their vagal nerve stimulator, which did provide them with some benefit. And they also connected us with other tertiary epilepsy centers in the country that were beginning to explore beyond the current FDA-approved indications for the device and beginning to explore whether it might have applications beyond those indications. And this fell into that camp. And this generated a conversation internally about the possibility of approaching thalamic stimulation. And as we know, the thalamus is widely connected through its subnuclei to all the cortical areas and affords a way to tap into a widely dispersed circuit. Then the conversation turned to what are some of the thalamic targets that we could access with this method and what has been done in this growing field of research to date. And we learned that the central median nucleus of thalamus as well as the anterior nucleus of thalamus have both been previously explored in a very small set of patients, probably less than 30 at the point that we were at across this country, but maybe there are others around the world that are beginning to explore stimulation in these areas. So we then deliberated on this topic. Wael, can you speak further about those conversations and your own thoughts about these respective targets as a way of tapping into the circuitry supporting epilepsy. Yeah, so I think the thalamus is a really interesting target for epilepsy in general. It's widely connected to the cortex. It's involved in cortical-cortical communication. You know, one cortical-cortical pathway will have a parallel cortical to thalamic to cortical pathway in animal studies and slice studies. It's very clear that cortical-to-cortical transmission requires thalamic function. And so the notion of stimulating the thalamus to disrupt the spread of seizures across the cortex makes a lot of sense from from that sort of basic science point of view. 
I think which nucleus in the thalamus is, is probably the bigger question these days. And, and the first concern we had is if we pick a nucleus in the thalamus and put the electrodes down, are we going to see evidence of seizures? Because if you put this device down and it's connected to the cortical areas that are giving rise to seizures, but itself doesn't reflect those seizures, then your device can't really do much. It's not going to be recording seizures. It's not going to know when to stimulate. And so for that reason, you could make an argument that maybe DBS, deep brain stimulation, is a is a safer approach because that's just like a pacemaker. You put it in, it'll modulate the thalamus and the associated circuits in such a way as to hopefully decrease the frequency or likelihood of seizures. But based on work that other people have been starting to do, it seemed more and more likely that we might be able to see evidence of seizures in the thalamus. And so we talked to the patient about this and explained the relative paucity of data in this area. But, you know, our strong suspicion that this would be effective or, or at least informative. And so we went ahead and we implanted the central median nuclei bilaterally. And we actually did. We, we were able to see good evidence of seizures on those electrodes, which, which was really encouraging. I don't believe that we have a lot of data yet on how he's responding to stimulation, which has been turned on very recently after a period of data acquisition. But you know, I think, again, you know, at the very least, we're now recording his seizures objectively, and we'll have a record of those. And hopefully when the stimulation really kicks in over time, he'll, he'll notice a benefit with respect to his seizure frequency. Yeah, so I think this particular case illustrates how this new form of therapy might open up groups of patients that otherwise would be very difficult, if not impossible, to provide a surgically satisfactory angle to augment their therapy. We're very excited, and we very much hope that this will benefit the patient, and time will be the judge. But I think, in theory, it provides us a new way of thinking about how to modulate neural circuits in patients with refractory forms of epilepsy in a way that we simply haven't been able to do up to this point. Those are the patients that I wanted to illustrate, and I think they each speak to a different category of patient and their respective challenges. Wow, it sounds like the technology has come a long way over the years. To summarize, what would you say are the key take-home messages about responsive neurostimulation? I would first start with the, the observation that neuromodulation, and particularly responsive neurostimulation, but taken as a group, all of these methods, really broaden the range of candidates who may now be treated in this manner and hopefully benefit from this new form of therapy to augment advances in pharmacotherapy can provide. So I think it's going to really open up treatment avenues for a much broader group of patients than we were previously able to help surgically because of the complexity of their particular type of problem or the particular location of their seizure foci. So this is now going to open up the door it already has for treating patients with bilateral temporal foci. It also offers a new avenue to approach patients who have a focus in the dominant temporal lobe who would otherwise potentially be at risk of cognitive decline and memory loss following a resective approach as we used to perform 10 to 20 years ago or even patients who are getting a laser ablation approach, which spares a great deal of the temporal lobe, but still does confer a risk of cognitive decline 
and memory loss as part of its treatment of the dominant temporal lobe. So now with the neuromodulatory approaches, we can think about approaching this group of patients in a way that might spare this critical function. Wael, do you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, it's important to say that generally speaking, you know, the surgical approach to epilepsy is different than what it had been 10 or 15 years ago. There's significantly more that we can do, many more different approaches we can apply to these patients. I think there's a broader pool of patients who are now candidates for surgery than had been previously. It's still the case that, you know, for, let's say, temporal lobe epilepsy, anterior temporal lobectomy is the gold standard. It has the greatest chance of seizure freedom, you know, or seizure reduction at least, but certainly the greatest chance of seizure freedom. And patients don't necessarily want us to take out large areas of the brain that might confer neurologic deficits or memory loss, cognitive decline, these other things. So it makes sense to try and do less and less in terms of you know, destructive approaches. Laser ablation is certainly a good procedure in the sense that it can, you, we can perform a selective amygdala hippocampotomy with it that certainly spares a lot more cognitive and memory function than would an anterior temporal lobectomy. Its success rates with comparison to anterior temporal lobectomy are a little bit less it depends a lot on patient selection, but you know, it also depends on how much we're actually able to ablate with the laser. And both of those approaches, resection and ablation, their efficacy tends to decrease a little bit over time. You'll have patients relapsing as year after year go by. And it's interesting because it's in contrast to what happens with neurostimulation, whether that's deep brain stimulation or responsive neurostimulation, is that over time, the efficacy of these approaches appears to increase. So I think having all these tools at our disposal allows us to tailor our therapy to individual patients and consider a much wider range of patients for surgery than we had been able to previously. And I would add that along with the focal epilepsies, there is some research that's very exciting across the country beginning to examine whether neurostimulation might benefit patients with the idiopathic generalized epilepsies. And a subset of these patients are also refractory to pharmacotherapy and have been very challenging to help surgically, of course. But groups are beginning to examine whether responsive neurostimulation, such as thalamically placed responsive neurostimulators, might be able to benefit this population. Of course, this is research in progress. So, uh, Time will tell us whether this is a profitable and, a, and helpful way to proceed, but I think you get the picture that this type of approach may further expand the range of candidates. Our third example with a multifocal post-encephalitic form of epilepsy is not an uncommon and very challenging case to try to help with all existing forms of therapies. Sadly, we are confronted with these challenges on a week-to-week basis, so having more tools in the toolbox is welcome. The other take-home messages we've touched on in our discussion involve the idea of sparing cognitive risk, and these methods do just that. We have not seen deleterious effects on cognition or memory. I think the preliminary evidence would suggest that in general, mood effects that are adverse are uncommon, but that may vary from method to method. And I think we still need to learn more about the downstream mood effects of the neuromodulatory forms of therapy. But I think at first glance, that seems to be neutral in general and occasionally helpful. And there may be rare exceptions 
in which there may be adverse effects on mood, but time will be the judge of that. I think the opportunity to combine this therapy, such as the combination of the vagal nerve stimulator with the responsive nerve stimulation methods, is exciting and an area that deserves further attention. The other thing that we touched on during our discussion that I would indicate as a take-home message is the, the our points that we were making where these indwelling devices such as responsive nerve stimulation that provide recordings from the brain give us access to real-world seizure recordings over months in patients with refractory epilepsy, and we get a much better sampling over time of their true seizure burden and the the respective localization of these seizures. And that may prove to be invaluable for some patients in giving us further options that could be later brought to bear to help these patients over time. And it remains to be seen, but we may learn more about certain biomarkers in the EEG signals that we're collecting with these indwelling devices that may educate us about more relevant and useful biomarkers that may guide treatment success. And I think this is an area to really look out for, and it's an opportunity that the RNS approach provides. Great. Thank you both again for speaking with me and sharing your insights. Thank you so much for allowing us to uh, participate in this educational project, and uh, we're delighted to be able to share our early experience with responsive neurostimulation. Yeah, thank you.